So as your bulletins reflect, we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah this morning, which is an absolute whale of a tale. Uh, I had to do that. Don't worry, that's my only whale joke. Um, He's easily the most famous of the, the minor prophets. If you grew up going to church, then no doubt you've heard about Jonah a lot in Sunday school, children's church. It's one of the few Old Testament stories that are like a staple of children's curriculum. Jonah and the whale, David and Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, Jonah's fame, though, surpasses that of Sunday school, as even many unbelievers, those who have never gone to church before in their lives, know and have heard of Jonah and the whale. At a base level, that's a good thing, that it's well known. It gives us believers a point of common knowledge that we can share with an unbeliever, which will lead, hopefully, into a gospel conversation, and the gospel is certainly present in the book of Jonah. The problem that can come with this widespread knowledge of Jonah, though, is, and this is true inside the church as it is outside, is, well, what's the most well-known part of the book of Jonah? If, If I asked you what the purpose of the book of Jonah was, what would you say? Our minds are likely to go to the whale. If we ask people on the street, what's the story about, what's the story of Jonah about? Nine out of ten people would agree that it's a story about a man who was swallowed by a whale. If we polled a group of Christians, we might get a more spiritual answer. Uh, It's about God's deliverance of Jonah and how God corrected Jonah's sour attitude and heart through the whale. For the church people, a lot of that thinking has to do with what's usually focused on when we learn of this historical event in children's church and Sunday school. Because what's the part of the Jonah narrative that's going to grab kids' attention? Well, being swallowed by a whale. Everybody loves a good fishing story, and you can't get one better than Jonah. The problem with that is that the book of Jonah is not about the whale. Jonah's adventure in the belly of the whale is an important part of the narrative. I don't want to minimize that too much. It does point to a greater miracle that we'll see. But the story of Jonah isn't an ancient ancient version of Free Willy. If all we're focusing on and teaching about is the part about the whale then it becomes really easy for us to miss the purpose and the point of the book as a whole. The book of Jonah is a book about God's great and gracious mercy toward the most unlikeliest and undeserving of people. Hence the title of the sermon this morning. I I said this a couple weeks ago when I preached on Habakkuk, but every minor prophet book has at least one unique feature about it. Jonah has a couple First of all, Jonah is a narrative. It records a period of Jonah's life. None of the other minor prophets really do that. Amos a little bit, Uh, but Jonah, it's a narrative. Second, the book takes place almost entirely outside of the land of Israel. And more surprising in that is that Jonah is sent to the capital of Israel's greatest enemy and biggest threat at the time. And the book records not their destruction, but their salvation. Far beyond the borders of Israel, we see in Jonah God working, acting, and saving. And this is the Old Testament. That's unique. And so as for the structure of today's sermon, I gave you an outline on the back of your bulletins. It's to help you follow along. It's similar to the one I did with Habakkuk, where each of the points is essentially a chapter in the book. And then we'll conclude with a sort of epilogue, so to speak, that we see in the New Testament. And so a little context before we get into the first chapter just so we can take in the full breadth of of the text. 
Don't know he was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, so this is well after the split of the two kingdoms. Historically, uh, Jonah, he gets a, a small shout-out in 2 Kings. That's sort of unique among the minor prophets. He's mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25, where we learn that he was active during the reign of the king of Israel named Jeroboam II. So not the first one who set up the golden calves, but uh, one of his descendants, which means that he was a prophet somewhere in the mid-700s B.C., And that's a really important detail because that means Jonah was a prophet some 20 to 30 years before the northern kingdom was destroyed and the people were exiled into the very land that Jonah is called by God to go and preach to in this book. The very nation that has threatened and bullied Israel, the one that God has already told Israel through his prophets like Habakkuk and Isaiah that is going to be the means of his judgment against them for their sin. And so Assyria, they were a brutal nation. They were bullies. They were the superpower at the time before the Babylonians. And the Assyrians didn't like the Israelites. The Israelites didn't like the Assyrians. And that's the context into which we come to verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the word of Yahweh comes to Jonah, that's standard prophetic fare, divine direct revelation, a message given to Jonah for the purpose of giving to someone else. And Jonah's used to this by this time, he's a veteran. The message, the mission for him is to go to the capital city of Assyria, which is Nineveh, and declare a simple message, a message that we get In chapter 3, judgment is coming against them for their wickedness. At face value, this should be the greatest news that Jonah has ever received from the Lord. Nineveh, that great city, evil as they come, Israel's greatest threat, is going to receive a divine judgment for their sin, and Jonah is the one privileged to tell them about it. God's seen their wickedness, he's going to judge it, he's going to punish it. But then we get a little twist in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah, he gets the news from the Lord that the Lord is going to overthrow Nineveh. And Jonah, instead of rushing to go and tell the people he doesn't like, this great news for him, Jonah immediately rushes to flee in the opposite direction. From Israel, Nineveh is to the east, and Jonah decides to go as far west as humanly possible. He goes to the port city of Joppa, which was on the Mediterranean coast, and Tarshish is believed to have been a town in Spain. So literally, he's going to the edges of the known world to escape having to deliver this message. And three times Tarshish is repeated in this verse, emphasizing that Jonah is not going to Nineveh as the Lord commanded him to. And so why does he do this? Well, we're not told just yet. We will be told. It will be revealed in chapter 4. But we see that Jonah's goal in it, in fleeing, is to try and flee from the presence of the Lord, which is strange. Because Jonah is a prophet. He's an otherwise faithful Jew. And yet he pays money to try and flee from the Lord's presence. 
For a Jew, and certainly for us believers, shouldn't the presence of the Lord be the one place we are always trying to get to and closer to? Didn't David always long to be in the presence of the Lord? Didn't he write that one day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere? What could cause one of God's prophets to want to try and flee from that location? To try and get as far away from the Lord's presence as possible? We're not told yet, but that should grab our attention. On top of this, Jonah should know that what he's trying is literally impossible. Though he's a citizen of wicked northern Israel, he is one of God's prophets. And he has probably read passages like Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12, where it's written, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Any self-respecting Israelite at this time reading this book would know that Jonah is not thinking as a Jew should think. He's not thinking of the Lord in terms of the, of the God of the Bible. He's thinking in terms of the nationalistic gods of the nations. The God of Assyria, he's contained to Assyria. The God of the Philistines only has jurisdiction over the land of the Philistines, at least according to their theology. But as Jonah is going to declare very shortly, the truth of the matter is that there is only one unique God who is not bound by borders, but who is omnipresent and sovereign over all things. Jonah in chapter 1, though, he's acting like a pagan. He thinks that he can hide from the Lord. He pays his fare. He gets on the boat. And we're not told how long the Lord lets them sail. From how long it takes the whale to bring Jonah back to the shore, assuming that he was making a direct route there and not doing some weird whale things, Jonah might have been on the boat thinking he's in the clear for a couple days. At the very least, Jonah was on board long enough for him to drift off to sleep. Jonah's obviously comfortable, he's feeling safe, maybe he thinks he succeeded in his mission to escape the presence of the Lord, but he's about to get a literal rude awakening in verses 4 through 6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captains came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The sea was angry that day, my friends. No, actually, God was angry. And I love the imagery of verse 4. I picture God as like a pitcher or maybe a bowler, and he just has this ball of wind that he just chucks at the ocean. God is not contained to the nation of Israel. Praise the Lord. Because we're in America, we're not in Israel. I don't know where this fierce storm just drops on these sailors' laps. Unpredictable, clearly supernatural, completely deadly, threatening not just the boat, but also the lives of those on board. And you know a storm, when a storm is bad, when the veteran sailors on the boat are terrified. You get some choppy water and nobody on the boat's really panicking. You know, things aren't bad. But these guys are, 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 are freaking out. 
They know that they're about to die if something doesn't change, and their first instinct is to cry out to their gods. So what we learn of them is that this is a multicultural crew. Clearly, none of them believe in the true God. They each have their own idols, and they're hoping that one of them, out of all the idols on board, one of them has to have some authority over the part of the ocean that they're in and is willing to lend a hand. And of course, they receive no answer, for as Jonah will himself pray in the belly of the whale, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. They get nothing in return. And so what, what now? Well, as they're, they're continually met with silence, they continually grow more desperate. And eventually they get to the point where they decide to throw their cargo overboard. And this is precious cargo. This is their livelihood. This is the livelihood for their families. This is the whole purpose of the trip. But it's not worth their lives. So they throw that overboard. It's not enough. The storm is too fierce. So now what? Well, where's that guy we picked up? Maybe his God has some jurisdiction and authority over the part of the ocean that we're in. And so the captain, he goes down. He wakes Jonah up. He's like, what are you doing, man? Now, I thought I was a heavy sleeper, but Jonah takes the cake. As a kid, one night, there was a fire in an apartment complex across the street from ours, multiple fire engines responding to it, apparently. And I say apparently because I slept through the whole thing, didn't hear a peep. I even fell, on a, a, fell asleep on a softball once. I woke up, got it out from under me, and was like, what's that doing there? Tossed it aside. But I humbly give my heavy sleeper crown to Jonah. Ship tearing apart, people yelling above deck, Jonah down below, counting sheep. But the captain rouses Jonah awake, tells him to cry out to his God for salvation, the very thing that Jonah did not want to do. The captain must have received silence from Jonah in return because the crew decides to cast lots to see whose fault it is, a game of random chance to determine unbiasedly whose fault it is. And it lands on Jonah. This is Proverbs 16.33 in action. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from Yahweh. God's sovereignty extending even to acts of seemingly random chance. There's no such thing as luck. So now the crew is pretty sure that Jonah is the reason why they're about to die, so they ask him some questions to try and get to the bottom of the situation. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What, have, what, what people are you from? Now Jonah, for all of his flaws, and he has many, he responds to this question amazingly. Verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry, dry land. Being traders from Joppa, or at the very least, frequent visitors to Joppa, no doubt these men have heard of the Israelites and their God. Maybe they've heard of the Exodus, or uh, Joshua's conquering of the land. Jonah fears Yahweh who is not like the idols of the sailors. Yahweh is not limited to a nation. Yahweh does not need permission or need to defeat a foreign deity to have jurisdiction over a different part of the land, to act outside of the nation of his people. Yahweh is the sole, unique God of heaven who created the land and the sea. He is sovereign over all, and implied in that is that it is him who sent this storm. And so the sailors hear this, and they respond in verses 10 and 11. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? 
for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. They're terrified. Jonah must have told them before that he was running from his God, and now they know the identity of that God. And so what are they going to do? Because the storm is only getting worse. Jonah, what, what do we do? How do we appease your God? What does he call for? What does he accept? And the answer is a sacrifice. Verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. I'm the one who angered the Lord, so throw me into the sea. Essentially, sacrifice Jonah's life for the life of those on board. Remember that Jonah right now is speaking to pagan Gentiles whose lives are are threatened. They're about to die and they know it. And so what would we expect their character to be? What would an Israelite expect their character to be? And yet look at their character in verses 13 to 16. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out, to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and let not, lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They tried to row back. And this isn't in like a, well, we tried, but they were really just not trying. Uh, They rode hard to try and see if there was another way other than killing Jonah. Maybe if we can just get Jonah back in the direction he's supposed to go, this will be enough. We won't have have to have his blood on our hands. They didn't want to kill Jonah, but God made it necessary for them to do so. Their rowing didn't work. They're out of options. They know that they have to throw Jonah into the sea. Faced with that reality, they pray again, but this time not to their idols. They're done with that. They pray to Yahweh. They call on his covenant name to forgive them for their ignorance. Yahweh, in our limited knowledge, throwing Jonah into the sea seems like our only only option. You have sent this storm. You have done as it pleased you. Please, if he's innocent, don't hold that against us. In faith, they are crying out to the God of heaven for mercy. They throw Jonah into the sea and instantly the storm stops. It came suddenly and it ends suddenly. It's clearly supernatural, clearly an act of the divine and a clear proof of the testimony of Jonah. He is the God of heaven who made the sea and the earth. The result from this being that these formerly idolatrous Gentiles feared Yahweh exceedingly. They don't know the Mosaic law. They've never been in a Bible study. None of them are Levites, and so we can cut them some slack on making sacrifices on the boat. But out of a genuine heart of faith, they offer those sacrifices to Yahweh, and they make vows. And this is the twist of the book, and it's greater than any twist that M. Night Shyamalan has ever thought of. Any Israelite who read or heard spoken to them the opening line that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, would instantly assume that Jonah is going to be the faithful one, the example to follow in the book, the good guy. But it's not Jonah. If anything, Jonah is almost like the antagonist of the narrative, as we saw in the first chapter and as we're going to see in chapter 4. 
Instead, it's the Gentiles who hear the word of the Lord and immediately respond rightly to it. They repent, they believe, they are saved. Save for chapter 2 in his prayer, Jonah's not the character you want to emulate in this book. It's the Gentiles. They're the ones hearing the word of the Lord. They're the ones obeying it. They're the ones finding mercy. And the first taste of that is in these sailors. And think about this. Why did God allow Jonah to run away in the first place? Where was Jonah's burning in the bosom like Jeremiah had, who found it was literally impossible not to preach the message that was given to him? God allowed Jonah to run away for a time for the purpose of saving this crew of Gentiles. It's almost like a mini Romans 11.32 where Paul says that God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Who can know the mind of the Lord? Who can measure the breadth of his mercy? Now the Lord wasn't just merciful towards the crew, he was also merciful toward Jonah. In this, the Lord didn't require Jonah's life to appease his wrath, but he saved him miraculously in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, you may have noticed by now that I've been calling the sea creature that swallows Jonah a whale. Uh, The ESV has a great fish. The Hebrew word used here is a general word. It can encompass all sorts of sea creatures. If you want to call it a great fish, more power to you. The identity of the animal doesn't matter, whether it's a shark, a giant whale, a a giant fish, or a plesiosaur. What matters is that we affirm that this truly happened, that this is true history, that Jonah was swallowed by this and was preserved for three days and three nights, and then he was spit up on the shore. As to what's emphasized in this verse, it's not the identity of the creature, but but that God appointed it. God is not just sovereign over the winds. He's not just sovereign over the sea. He's not just sovereign over games of random chance. He is completely sovereign even over whales. God told this whale to swallow Jonah, and it swallowed Jonah. God's going to command the whale to spit Jonah out after three days, and it's going to spit Jonah out after three days. It's more obedient than Jonah. God's sovereignty has no limits, which extends to his mercy. As he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. To the Lord's discretion. As Jonah was sinking to the depths of the sea, he prayed to God for salvation and was heard. And now inside of the whale, he prays again. And it's it's a truly beautiful prayer. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. 
but with the voice of thanksgiving i will sac- will sac- but with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what i have vowed i will pay salvation belongs to the lord the prayer is very expressive clearly inspired by his experience you can hear it in the language sort of like the lyrics to that great hymn it is well if you don't know the story behind that hymn it is well it was written in the late 1800s by a man horatio stafford spafford who had received a letter from his wife who had sailed with their four daughters to Europe. And the letter he received read in part, Saved alone. While they were sailing, his wife and daughter's boat went down and all four of his daughters died. And so as Horatio was sailing across the sea to meet his wife who survived, he wrote the lyrics, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, it's a different context, but it's similar imagery. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Where is Jonah right now? He's in the belly of a whale. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Sure, the sailors were the direct agents who threw Jonah into the sea, but it was your hand, O Lord, that cast me there. You ordained it to happen, and it was your ways that pushed me into the depths. But look at verse 4. He had the hope that despite him being actively pushed under the water, he would once again look upon God's holy temple. He had hope. Chapter 1, he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 2, it's the presence of the Lord that that is his hope in life and death. And then he sunk. He sunk so far that seaweed wrapped around his head and he thought that the bars of the land of of the dead had shut him in. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh, my God. As he was drowning, he remembered Yahweh and prayed to him for salvation and his hope was not in vain. For us, is this a guarantee that if you find yourself drowning in the sea and if you pray to God, he'll send a whale to rescue you? Or physically... Uh, save you in some other way? No. But Jonah's prayer, Jonah's example, is an example that all those who cry out to the Lord will not be put to shame, whether in life or in death. If you put your hope in idols, whether that be a wooden or golden statue of a cow or your pocketbook, you forsake your 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 hope of steadfast love. If your supreme treasure is anything but Yahweh, who on this side of the cross we know has provided the sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ, you are turning your back on steadfast love. You're forsaking it. It's gone. Remember who's Jonah's, who Jonah's audience is. He's going to be speaking to Assyria, but he's writing to Israel. Idolatrous, wicked, northern Israel with their two golden calves, vain idols that they're hoping in. But Jonah, as he's in the belly of the whale, has a voice of thanksgiving because he has trusted in the only one who owns salvation. Salvation is the Lord's. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but again, we're on this side of the cross. We're not Jewish. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. He has sole ownership over it and he is sovereign to dispense it on whom he wills. 
It is his to give according to his sovereign hand. And so if you want salvation, which I hope you would, you have to go through the means that he has provided and declared for you to go through. You have to go through Christ. Hope in him alone and you will not be put to shame. And you will be like Jonah with a voice of thanksgiving. Come to Christ and you will find mercy as Jonah did. Jonah was saved from the deep. He was snatched out of the land of the dead. He was preserved in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights. And then at the Lord's sovereign command, the whale vomited Jonah up on dry land. We get to chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, it's almost like a reset, an extra life. Uh, Well, Jonah's experience have changed him. Jonah knows for certain now that he cannot escape the presence of the Lord. What he should have realized in chapter 1. That was just a foolish thing to do. But sometimes, even oftentimes, uh, people and even ourselves are deluded in our sin and still return to it even though we know that it's clearly vomit. Jonah, thankfully, he's learned his lesson. We'll see that he still has a heart issue that he needs to deal with, but for now he's good. And so here's God's mission for Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It's the same message. And this time Jonah goes according to the word of the Lord. Finally, obedience. Now when God has twice now called Nineveh that great city, we see that he he truly meant it. This is an ancient city and yet it took three days to go from one end of it to another. That's pretty big. Now, again, Jonah gets a lot of hate. He gets looked down upon among all of God's prophets and he's brought a lot of that on himself for his actions and his attitude, but we've got to give Jonah the props he deserves when he deserves it. God sends him to a city full of wicked people who hate, or at the very least dislike, Hebrews, Israelites. Jonah goes to the very heart of that city, and he proclaims God's message faithfully. A message, as we see in verse 4, that is pure judgment. There's no salvation preached in it at all, at least explicitly. Now, there could have been a longer message that Jonah delivered, but that's not recorded for us. And so we have to stick with what Scripture says. Jonah doesn't even mention the name of his God. The Ninevites could have taken this as Jonah speaking for Israel, declaring war on Assyria. Jonah might have thought, going there, that they're just going to rip me to pieces. And yet he went and he declared that message. That's boldness. And missionaries all across the world are doing the very same thing in a slightly different way today. Missionaries in places like Iran, Afghanistan, even China, who are risking their lives to share the gospel. The gospel, which is a message of judgment if it's rejected. This boldness, though, can't just define the Jonas of the world and those called to missionary work overseas, but must define every one of us in Christ If Jonah can preach to that great and terrible city, Nineveh, we can preach to our co-workers. We can preach to our families, family members, and our friends. Because who is our hope and our strength? Is it not the God who commands the sea and the whales and even the worms? Then let's proclaim the gospel in all boldness. And so Jonah preaches a message essentially of all burn. There's no turn here. And yet the miraculous happens in verse 5, which Verses 6 to 9 expand on. Verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They believed God and they repented. And I fully believe that this was a true revival, a true salvation that overtook this generation of Ninevites. They're so repentant that they even put sackcloth on the cows. Like, that's good. That's a true mourning over their sin. A cynic, though, might say, but it doesn't say that they believed Yahweh, but just that they believed God. It just uses the word Elohim. How do we know that they weren't crying out to their idols? Well, we know because God saw that they turned from their evil ways. And I trust God's judgment over our judgment. Another uh, opposition might be, but if Jonah never said the name of his God, how would they know that Jonah was a prophet of Yahweh? Well, that's the whole purpose of a whole chunk of the Mosaic law. That Israel would stand out from the nations to make the Israelites look different than the world. A faithful Jew in how they dressed, in what they ate, in how they spoke, looked and sounded vastly different than the nations that surrounded them. And so the people see Jonah, they hear his message, they put two and two together, and they believe. On top of this, repentance and salvation don't come by way of inference. They don't come by way of intellect or being smart enough to put the puzzle pieces together. They are gifts given to people by the Lord. I don't think I have to convince anyone here that salvation and faith are a gift, as in they're not earned or come from us. But so too is repentance. And a good example of this is in Acts eleven eighteen, where Peter in Joppa, sound familiar? The very port city that Jonah used to try and flee from the presence of the Lord because he didn't want to preach to Gentiles, Peter finds himself in preaching to Gentiles for the first time. God is amazing in how he works those things out. And then Peter comes back to Jerusalem after this, after he preaches and the Gentile believes and is saved and his whole family. And he reports to the church that salvation has come to the Gentiles and this is the reaction. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance is a gift. God's great mercy extended to the people of Nineveh through Jonah's preaching. He granted them belief and repentance. And the end result in verse 10 is life. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. A common question from this verse, and ones like it, and ones that speak of God's regret, is I thought that God couldn't change his mind. Numbers 23, 19 is pretty clear. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do, do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God said, through Jonah that Nineveh would be overthrown in 40 days, yet he spares them. And their destruction will come much, much later. How do we reconcile these two truths? The answer to this conundrum is found in the purpose of a warning, of warnings. There is a difference now between a threat and a warning. A threat is an intimidation tactic often with the intent and desire that the one receiving the threat will take you up on it. You, you want 
the threat to be concluded. When Batman shakes down a henchman for information, he threatens them. He doesn't warn them. He threatens them. A warning, though, is different. A warning has an inherent intent that whatever the danger is, that it doesn't befall the one you're warning. If I see a fire suddenly break out in the the back of the room while everyone is looking at me, and I just yell, fire, if you stay here, you will die, the inherent message in that is the desi- my desire for you to flee and to save your lives. This is the answer to all of those atheists who make the complaint that God is a tyrant and a bully who just threatens people to get what he wants. No, God doesn't threaten, he warns. Sometimes the warnings in the Bible are very sharp, as we've seen as Derek's preached through Hebrews, but they're still warnings. God declares that you will spend eternity under, eternity under his wrath if you continue in your sin. But he's given his son whose innocent life and sacrificial death are sufficient to forgive your sin. So turn and believe in him and find that salvation. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. His desire for you is to turn. The reason the world is still running right now at this very second and that his wrath has not completely destroyed it yet is because God does not wish for any to perish. He is patient. Inherent in all of the warnings of the Bible is the command to repent and believe. And with the tiny bit of light that the Ninevites received, they got the message and they obeyed the command. And God, being consistent with his character, responded to their faith and obedience with forgiveness. With mercy. As we're going to see in the the next chapter, this is exactly why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. He wasn't afraid that they'd tear him to pieces. He was afraid because he he wasn't afraid. He, He knew that even though this message was just one of judgment, he knew the purpose of a warning. And he knew that this possibility was possible. God does not react in the sense that he things catch him off guard, as if he has to play catch-up. But he does respond to things in time. Nineveh turned from their evil way, at least for a generation, and in return, God showered his mercy upon them, as he said he would in consistency with his character. And if Nineveh could receive mercy, who else can receive mercy? Absolutely anyone. Even that chief of sinners, Paul. Think also of this, just thinking about God's sovereignty for a second. If Nineveh didn't repent here to Jonah's message and God wiped the city off the face of the earth, there would have been no exile of Israel in 30 odd years at the hand of the Assyrians. They'd have no resources to do so. They'd be rebuilding. And if there would have been no exile, no disciplining from the Lord in that, Israel would have continued in their sin unabated. And their fate would have been much worse than it was. And God's salvation of the Ninevites and his showing mercy to them, God was also showing mercy to the Israelites. But that's not the only way he shows his mercy toward Israel in this book. Nineveh from the least to the greatest repent. Hallelujah. God relents of the disaster and Jonah is angry. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. He was exceedingly displeased. More literally, he saw this as evil. What was evil? God's mercy on the Ninevites. Verses 2 and 3. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. 
For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah knew of the Lord's mercy. He knew the Lord's character. He knows that the Lord does not desire the death of the wicked. Jonah knew that there was a good chance that God would have mercy on Nineveh, and he didn't want that to happen. The Ninevites are wicked. They are Israel's enemies. He hated the Ninevites in his nationalistic zeal. Jonah is just fine and has no complaints when he receives mercy from the Lord, but the Ninevites, they can burn. That's a different story. And so Jonah sees their forgiveness, realizes that they're receiving the Lord's mercy, and just goes off the rails. Lord, just kill me. Just kill me now. He's saying that it would be better for him to die than having to see the Ninevites live. He's a petulant child throwing a tantrum who doesn't truly understand what the Lord's mercy and grace mean. And so God asks him, is what you're doing, is your attitude right? The clear answer is no, but Jonah doesn't give a response. Instead, he takes his pity party outside the city. He sets up a little tent, and his plan is to wait and see what happens to the the city. And the clear implication being that he's hoping that the Lord changes his mind again and destroys Nineveh in 40 days. What happens instead is an object lesson from God to Jonah as we close out the book. Starting in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he he should see what became of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head and to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for this plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? As God appointed the whale, he appoints a plant to give Jonah some shade. Jonah was exceedingly displeased at the Ninevites' repentance, but this plant, he's glad. But just as quickly as it comes into Jonah's life, it's gone. God is sovereign even over worms. God appoints a worm to eat the plant, and then he appoints a scorching wind to just hammer Jonah down. And now Jonah is hopping mad, and back to his crying, just kill me. I just want to die at this point. And so God asked him a similar question as before. Are you right to be angry about the plant? Jonah gives an emphatic yes to which God responds with a rhetorical question that ends the book. And the essence of the question is this, Jonah, if you care so much about an insignificant plant that you didn't sow, you didn't work hard to grow, you didn't toil over, isn't it then right for me to care about the lives of the multitude living in Nineveh? The Lord vindicates his compassion and mercy toward wicked Nineveh in Jonah's love for the plant. This is not an evil thing that God has done. 
in forgiving the sinner. But actually, it's a tremendous good, Jonah. And this ending has confuddled people for centuries. Why does the book end so abruptly and almost unresolved? We don't hear Jonah's response to the question, and so we might ask, did he come around in the end? Did he get the lesson about God's mercy? Also, you might be wondering, where do I get that chapter 4 shows God's mercy toward Israel? Because Israel's not mentioned in the book at all. Well, really, it's not just chapter 4 that, God, that shows God's mercy toward Israel. It's the whole book. Who wrote the book of Jonah and why did he write it? The author never identifies himself, so we can't die on this hill, but there's no good reason why we wouldn't just take Jonah to be the author of the book. Who else would know all these details and the specific prayer that he had in the belly of the whale? If Jonah did write this book, then Jonah's response to God's concluding rhetorical question is the book itself, which includes his warts and all. He doesn't whitewash himself like, I was so great. I I immediately obeyed the Lord. I forgot all about the whale. You don't need to know about that. No, I was disobedient. I had to be thrown into the sea and swallowed by a whale. I was a, a child after I saw the repentance of Nineveh. And so I fully believe that Jonah got the message. And though he was sent by God to Nineveh, the Holy Spirit inspired him to record his experience for the people of Israel. The same people who at the very time Jonah was going to Nineveh and then writing his account, the the people are completely wicked, they're trusting in vain idols, and just a few short years from utter devastation. This book is a warning to Israel, and thus inherent in it is a call for repentance and to hope and to put their faith in the great and gracious mercy of God. Israel, look at the Gentile sailors who heard of God's sovereignty and lived, who saw his power and repented and believed and escaped their destruction. Take the example of Jonah, of of me, who was delivered from death and who declared that salvation belongs only to Yahweh. And look at that great city Nineveh that was overrun with iniquity. They didn't receive multiple prophets that came to them with various messages with explicit calls for repentance. They weren't given decades to turn, lest destruction would come upon them. They were given 40 days. And yet they heard of the Lord's coming judgment against them. They reckoned it to be true, and in faith they immediately repented and fell on the Lord for mercy. And guess what happened to them? The Lord's great mercy extended even to them. The Lord forgave them, Gentiles, wicked Ninevites, In the writing of the book, Jonah is telling his fellow Israelites, he's forgiven them. He's forgiven me. He will forgive you if you would just put away your idols and return to him. But again, we can't just stop with the message and intent for Israel. We can't stop there because we're not Jewish. And we've been given a greater sign of the great and gracious mercy of God than the sign of Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Give us a sign, Jesus, even though they've already been given plenty of signs as to who his identity was. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you know that guy Jonah, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you've read his story. He was pointing to me as he was figuratively dead to the world in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, but appeared alive at the end, so too the Son of Man will be truly dead and buried in the heart of the earth and will be alive at the end. He will burst victoriously from the tomb. As Jonah was a sent one of God, Jesus Christ is the greater sent one of God. And at the last day, all the people of Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah will stand up in judgment against those who rejected Christ. Why? What gives them the right? Because all the light that they received was a simple sentence of judgment. And yet they repented and believed. How much more guilty are they who hear of the greater Jonah, the one who is and who was and who is to come, and yet do not repent and believe? We're on this side of the cross. We have the full picture of God's plan of redemption in and through Christ. We have the complete picture of God's great mercy towards sinners in the giving of his son and the atoning sacrifice for sin. As we've seen in Hebrews, if we reject that and trust in something else, what's left for us? And so believe in the greater Jonah. Christ didn't need to be thrown into the sea to calm the storm that his disciples woke him up for. Jesus Christ truly died as a sacrifice for sin, but was raised by the Father, vindicating his identity as the Son of God and Savior of the world. And the message he preaches is far greater than the one that Jonah preached at Nineveh. Flee, not to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord, but to Christ, where God has promised you will find forgiveness and mercy in your time of need. Flee to him. Because it's an offer of grace and mercy that is available to all, but it is an offer that is only effective for those who believe by faith and repent likewise. And so consider the story of Jonah and flee to Christ. Let's pray. Dear gracious Father, we thank you for this message, Lord. We thank you for the story of Jonah, Lord, that's more than a story of a man swallowed by a whale. It's a story of your mercy, Toward unredeemable, undeserving sinners, Lord. Gentiles in the Old Covenant. Jonah, who is disobedient to, to you. Let us learn from their example, Lord. To trust in your word. To believe what you have said about Christ. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And to come to you through him. Help us to repent of our sins, Lord. To turn completely from them and to live anew in Christ. To trust his message of forgiveness, Lord, knowing that from him come eternal life and his righteousness. Help us also to be bold like Jonah, Lord, to preach this message to others, Lord, to call them to flee, not from your presence, but towards it, Lord, and to flee to Christ. And we pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.